0: John 10:31 to 42 I am the son of God 10:31 The Jews took up stones again to stone him Jesus answered them I showed you many good works from the Father for which of them are you stoning me The Jews answered him For a good work we do not stone you but for blasphemy and because you being a man make yourself out to be God Jesus answered them Has it not been written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. And many came to him, and they were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come to you in the name of Christ, knowing that this is your word. It is true. It's reliable. It is more reliable than the grass, the flower of the field, and all flesh. Father, we pray that we will have full confidence in it, believe it, and believe what it says about our lord and savior jesus christ and we ask in his name amen in this passage we come to another stunning place in the book of john and not only here in the book of john uh, the first place it's not the first time that this kind of thing has happened this happens constantly throughout the ministry of christ the ministry of the apostles and even if we were to read carefully the ministry of the prophets of the old testament And what is it? The truth is spoken, the truth is spoken about God and the true way of salvation, and yet, people, when they hear that word of truth, instead of embracing the truth from God himself, instead, they have their presuppositions, they have assumptions, they have certain beliefs that they don't want to give up, and usually it's the love of sin. Some kind of ethical or moral sin. There is some sin that they want. They don't want to give it up. And therefore, they won't repent. And they won't believe in that truth. Instead of believing in that truth, repenting of sin, what do they do? They accuse the prophet, the apostle, the pastor, and in this case, our Lord Jesus Christ, they accuse him of blasphemy and of claiming something that he should not claim. They accuse him of blasphemy and a a claim that he's making. They say he should not be saying that. Therefore, he deserves to go away. He deserves to be arrested. He deserves actually to be put to death. Instead of believing the truth, they want to put to death Christ, the messenger, of truth. Let's see in greater detail. Verse 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Why did they take up stones to stone him? Because of what he said in the preceding paragraph. In the preceding paragraph, he claims to plainly have told them that he is the Christ. Verse 24. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. He claims to be the Christ, the Messiah. And that Christ, Messiah, was also called the Son of God. Was also believed to be deity, divine. That's what he's claiming in verses 24 to 25. But also in verses 28 to 30, just as the Father gives eternal life to the sheep, the Son also gives eternal life to the sheep. The Son has the same function or purpose, role, as the Father. And in 30, I and the Father, we are one. The Father and the Son, both of them have the same purpose, but they are also the one and the same God. There is only one God, not two or three or millions of gods, There's only one true and living God. Christ says, the Father and I, we are that one God with one purpose. These Jews, they knew clearly he claimed this. That's why they pick up stones because they want to put him to death. They accuse him of blasphemy, verse 33. They want to seize him in verse 39 they don't want to believe in him. They want to undermine him and they want to kill him. They clearly understood, correctly understood, what Jesus asserted about himself. That's why they want to stone him. Stoning to death for blasphemy was the penalty for blaspheming God, for slandering or insulting God It was indeed the penalty that should have been executed, carried out on those that did so. But Jesus didn't do it. Notice what they do they misunderstand what Jesus said and then they wrongfully prosecute him. They wrongfully misunderstand what he says, they misunderstand what he said then they wrongfully prosecute, they wrongfully pursue attacking him by wrongfully understanding him. Though they do it with the right response, meaning what would be or what should be the penalty if someone actually did blaspheme? If someone actually did blaspheme, what should happen to him? According to Leviticus 24, 10 to 23. Leviticus 24, 10 to 23. The penalty for blasphemy was stoning to death. It's curious that they take the right penalty and apply it to the wrong person. That's what's happening. Leviticus 24, 10. Now, the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. And the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shilomith, the daughter of Divri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who has cursed outside the camp, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. And you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he shall bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall surely stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And if a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. And the one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good, life for life. And if a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Thus the one who kills an animal shall make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard for you, it shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, and they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp and stoned him with stones. Thus the sons of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. They don't have evidence to accuse Christ, to stone him to death they prematurely and rashly want to put him to death in verse 31 it says again again previously in john 8 jesus claimed deity for himself in john 858 before abraham was born i am and then in 859 therefore they picked up stones to throw at him but jesus hid himself and went out Of the temple. They have an insatiable desire to not believe the word of Christ, and instead of believing the word of Christ, they want to put Christ to death. That's how much they have rage and hatred against Christ. Jesus, he answers his critics. John 10. 32, Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? I showed you many good works from the Father. The good works he means, in this case, most likely has to do with his miracles. Not that he committed sin, but he's talking about the good works of the miracles the miracles he performed in cha- chapter 9 he healed a blind man in chapter 5 he healed a lame man in mark chapter 5 he healed a demon possessed man he healed a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years he healed a sick girl 12 year old girl who was sick and then died and then raised her up from the dead jesus did these kinds of miraculous works, many good works, not just one, but many of them. His life was a godly life without any sin. His teaching was a teaching that was in accordance with Scripture. And then he had many good works that buttressed, that vindicated, that supported what he was teaching and the way he was living. There was nothing that they could accuse him of doing wrong. The good works often that brought attention in the eyes of the Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, were those good works that he performed on the Sabbath day, such as in John chapter 5 and in John 9. In John 5 and 9, he healed on the Sabbath day, and that especially perturbed these religious teachers. That especially bothered them. They were very, very irritated by it, that he would do so on the Sabbath day. Because they had erected, they had concocted views of the Sabbath day that were contrary to the Word of God. And that blinded them so much that they didn't realize how in the world could Jesus heal, do many good works on the Sabbath day, good works, not evil works, on the Sabbath day, unless God the Father was with him with those miraculous works on the Sabbath day. They didn't consider that, or they didn't believe that. He could only do it if God the Father were with him. So their sin, their pride, their rebellion against Christ, the Word of Christ, blinded them so much that when a good thing happened before their very eyes, they could not embrace it. They could not embrace it and even acknowledge that they were from the Father. Not from the Father of lies, not from the murderer who was a murderer and a liar from the beginning, Satan, but they were from God the Father. They had to be from God the Father. They claim to know God the Father, but they work against God the Father because they work against his Son and try to stone him to death. Verse 33, the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now they mitigate their animosity by saying, okay, it's not the good work. We're not stoning you for healing people. We're not stoning you for raising dead people up from the grave. We're not stoning you for that. We're stoning you for blasphemy. You claim to be the Christ. You claim to be the Son of God. You claim to be God. You make yourself out to be God. How so? both by healing also by prophecy both by healing by prophecy or by his word he healed many people and when he healed them he expected them to understand who he was such as mark 5:19 mark 5:19 after he healed the demon possessed man the man who had the legion of demons in him 519. And he did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Who is the Lord here? The Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Verse 20. And he went off and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for you. For him. And everyone marveled. Jesus is the Lord. The Lord is Jesus. He is the one who had mercy on that man and healed him. It was the Lord Jesus who did so. He's claiming deity for himself, his miraculous powers, and his affirmations, his declarations. Tell them the Lord did this. Jesus is the Lord then. He's claiming this deity for himself. So when they say, you make yourself out to be God, they're right that Jesus is claiming it. But they're wrong in not believing it. Jesus claimed it in John 10, 30. I am the Father, we are one. He claimed it in John 8, 58. Before Abraham was born, I am. He claimed it in John eight twenty four. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins for unless you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. They had to believe in Him. They must believe in Him for eternal life. Eternal life is only found in God, not found in a creature. He clearly declared that He was deity. But they don't want to believe in his true identity, so they accuse him of blasphemy. Further, in verses 34 to 36, Jesus uses an argument. He uses something that people do all the time. They do it in daily life, and they also do it in philosophy and logic and theology. They do what is known as... Comparing from the lesser to the greater. When you go and you ask an expert about anything, he'll tell you, if you don't know the issues, you don't have expertise in that field of knowledge, the expert will tell you from the lesser to the greater. If you go to a car mechanic, he'll explain it from the lesser to the greater. If you go and find any expert in any field, computer science. He'll explain things to you from the lesser to the greater to make sure you understand what you need to know. That's how it works. Jesus is doing the same here. He's about to explain from the lesser to the greater. What is it? 34, Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. Jesus says, in the Old Testament, the people, some people were called gods. They were called gods for a reason. And the reason is a valid reason if they are called gods for a valid reason in the Old Testament, why are you saying I am blaspheming if I say I am the Son of God when the Father sanctified me and sent me into the world? If God the Father set me apart and sent me into the world, I am not blaspheming if I declare to you I am the Son of God. You are tripped up by this word God, but you shouldn't be. You are stumbling because the word God is used, or I'm using the word God for myself, but you shouldn't be stumbling because God used the word God of men, mere men, and even sinful men in the Old Testament. And God used it in a valid way. If God used it, in a valid way of sinful men in the Old Testament, why are you accusing me of blasphemy if I have actually been set apart by God, sent into the world, and I tell you with many good works from the Father that I am the Son of God? You shouldn't be troubled by it. You should know. You should have enough sobriety of thought, composure of thought, to understand what's being said. Let's unpack this some more. Verse 34. Has it not been written in your law, I said you are God's. Firstly, when Jesus says your law, he does not intend to say the law belongs to them, it doesn't belong to Christ or anybody else. He's merely saying your law in order to highlight the fact that they should know about it because they have possession of it. It was delivered to them. They study it. They have possession of it. Your law means you should know better than to react this way. Your law does not mean it belongs to you. It does not belong to me. It does not mean that. Your law means you should know better since you have access to it and you are students of it. You are not only students of it, but you are teachers of it. You should know better. Do you not know? Have you not heard? As Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Jesus says, that's the sense in which he says, your law. Further, he calls the part of scripture he is quoting law. When he's quoting Psalm 82, 6, He's quoting Psalm 82, verse 6. And he calls that Psalm law. Why does he call it law? It was a custom among the Jews in the Bible and outside the Bible to refer to any part of the Old Testament as law. Any part of the Old Testament as law. Normally, the majority of the time, they would cite the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy, the law of Moses as the law. That would be generally what they would do, but not exclusively. And even John the Apostle here is referring to the book of Psalms as law because it was also instructive, it was also expected to live in accordance with what's in the Psalms. Since it's expected to live in accordance with what's in the Psalms, it can be called law. We have this example right here in John 10, 34, quoting Psalm 82 and verse 6. Keep your place here and turn to John 12. John 12, 34. 12, 34. The multitude, therefore, answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The multitude, not Jesus, but the multitude, the common people are saying, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. They're also using the word law this way. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Well, where are they going to read that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up and the Son of Man is going to live forever? Examples would be Psalm 110, verse 4. 110, 4. You are a priest forever. You are a priest forever. Which is a prophecy? Psalm one ten verse four, Isaiah nine seven, the throne of his kingdom forever. He will sit on the throne of the kingdom of David forever. Messiah Christ will do so. And then Daniel seven fourteen, seven thirteen and fourteen. In Daniel seven thirteen, the Christ is called the Son of Man, and in seven fourteen, it says he has an everlasting dominion. And his dominion is one which will not have an end. So we've just quoted Psalm 110, Isaiah 9, and Daniel 7. In these places, the Son of Man is said to remain forever, to live forever, to have an eternal kingdom. Yet they say, it says it in the law. Yes, it does say in the law, but it also says it there in other parts of the Old Testament. And also John 15, John 15:25. 15, John 15:25. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. In their law they hated me without a cause or without a reason, without a valid reason. They hated me. What is it that Jesus quotes? He quotes from Psalm thirty five nineteen, thirty-five nineteen, and sixty-nine four, thirty-five nineteen and sixty-nine four from the Psalms. And just one more reference. 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. The Apostle Paul does the same as the Apostle John. 1 Corinthians 14, 21. 14, 21. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me. Says the Lord. Where does He quote? He calls it law in the law, it is written, but He quotes Isaiah 28:11 and 12. Isaiah 28:11 and 12. Returning now to John 10, 10:34, the quote is, "I said, you are gods.' I said, you are God's. Psalm 82, verse 6. Who is the main speaker in Psalm 82? The main speaker is God. The secondary speaker is David, or writer is David. The main one is God. The secondary one is David. Or we should say at the, in Psalm 82, a Psalm of Asaph who was a contemporary in the time of David. Psalm 82. What is this all about? God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. His own congregation, he judges. God judges in the midst of the rulers. Who are these rulers in verse 1? The rulers... Are the authorities in the land, the leaders in the land, even the religious leaders in the land, who have the word of God and who are supposed to execute justice on behalf of the common people? They have the authority from God to execute justice on behalf of the people of the land. That's who they are. But they don't do it that way. They don't execute justice, but injustice. Verse 2, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and destitute, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They're not behaving properly. They're not conducting their duty as God intended. So they are wicked judges. Verse 5, They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. And all of you are sons of the Most High. I said, you are gods. Who is the I? God. God said to these rulers, these judges, you are gods. And all of you are sons of the Most High. That's who they are by designation. That's who they are by name and responsibility. That's who they are by their duty. They are gods and sons of the Most High. In terms of their office, in terms of their position, in terms of their responsibility, their duty, they are called gods. However, God's going to punish them. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth. For it is you who possesses all the nations. God will punish them. This is not the first time. This concept of a judge being called a God because of his responsibility in holding the word of God, interpreting it correctly, and then delivering that to the people whenever they have disputes between each other, This is something Moses established in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. Let's turn there. Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. This has to do with a slave and his master. Slave and master. Exodus 21. We'll read verses 5 and 6. 21, 5 and 6. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Shall bring him to God, it says. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him Permanently, His master shall bring him to God. What does that mean, to God? Take him to heaven, where God dwells? Does it mean bring him to God, meaning bring him to the Holy of Holies in the innermost part of the tabernacle and temple? Bring him there? Is that what it means? What does it mean to bring him to God. Keep our place there and compare it with 22. Chapter 22, Exodus 22, 8 and 9. Exodus 22, 8 and 9. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says, This is it. The case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If you have a footnote for verse 9, what does the footnote say? It says in the translation, bring him to the judge, before the judge. But the footnote says, bring him to God. Why? Because the word for God, which is also the same in 21 verse 6, is the same here in 22 verse 9, 22, 8 and 9. The translators for the NASB have chosen in 22, 8 and 9 to render it "judge." Instead of God. But if they wanted to be consistent, if they were consistent with twenty one six, they would have rendered chapter twenty two. Bring the thief shall appear. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the, the before God. The owner shall appear before God to determine what has happened. And even the case of both parties shall come before God. But they didn't render it God because it says, he whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor, which then adds confusion to us. The confusion, I think, will be resolved in Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19. How is it that God meant it? When he says... Whenever there's a dispute, come before God. What does God mean when he says come before God? Are these men gods? No. Deuteronomy 19 Deuteronomy 19 we'll read 15. 15 to 21. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord. Shall stand before the Lord. How so? Before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. To stand before the Lord or to stand before God means to stand before the priests and the judges who have the word of God, who are representatives of God, and they are commissioned to do what's righteous in the sight of God on behalf of the people. And then it says in 18, The judges shall investigate thoroughly. And verse 19, you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother and purge the evil so that others are warned. This is what Psalm 82, 6 means. God says, I graced you with this privilege of being called God in the sense that you have the word of God and you deliver the word of God and the people respect you as that and you should deliver accordingly. But you are so wicked, you don't. But in contrast, in contrast, Jesus says, you can tolerate that with wicked people. And you know what Exodus 21 and 22 and Deuteronomy 19 say. You know that and you are happy to take that title upon yourself, though you are wicked most of the time. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. I'm not disputing that that is the case. The scripture cannot be broken. It cannot be violated. We know exactly what it means. I'm not trying to undermine it. We know what we're talking about. We know it's plain and easy to understand. We know what it means. Then, if that is the case, verse 36... Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? How is it that you have the audacity now to accuse me of blasphemy because of my claims to deity, to say I am the Son of God? When I say that, you are wanting to put me to death. Don't you realize the Father sanctified me The Father set me apart. The Father sent me into the world. Don't you recognize that? Don't you know that? Is that not obvious to you? How is it that you are so audacious in rejecting the obvious truth before your very eyes with a righteous man who has committed righteous deeds, miraculous deeds, and there has been no problem I have correctly interpreted the Word of God just as they know He has interpreted Psalm 82, six. They know that. A detail of Scripture that the common reader of Scripture would not grasp unless he were very, very studious. But the teachers of the law, they would know what the law says. They have memorized many parts of it. They know so Jesus says, you know these kinds of details, but then the obvious truth before your very eyes, you have the audacities, you have so much pride and fury against me that you want to kill me and accuse me of something that is false. I'm not blaspheming God. A word of clarification, when it says the Father sanctified He's not talking about general sanctification, which is true of you and me, meaning growing in holiness. He's talking about this special, unique sanctification where Christ was with the Father before the world was, sharing glory with the Father, and then the Father set Him apart, sanctified Him to, bring, to send Him into the world to die for our sins. That is the special sanctification he means. Further, verse 36. In 36, Jesus says, I am the Son of God. In verse 33, they say, you make yourself out to be God. When Jesus says, I am the Son of God, and they say, you make yourself out to be God, is Jesus in any way mitigating diminishing, taking away from the assertion of deity, the claim to deity. Some misinterpreters, some heretics, cultists say, you see, the Jews, they misunderstood Jesus in verse 33, that Jesus says he's God, he possesses a divine nature. And we know that because in 36, Jesus decreases who he is, he diminishes who he is by saying, I'm the Son of God. I'm not God, I'm just the Son of God. That's what cultists and heretics say. But they misunderstand. To claim to be the Son of God is to claim to be God. The claim to be the Son of God is a claim to be God, meaning have a divine nature just like God the Father. When he says, I am the Son of God, it's the same as saying he has a divine nature equal to God the Father. How do we know this? We know this from John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In the beginning, 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is called God in verse 1. He was with God in verse 2. And in verse 3, He created all things. Not all other things, but all things. Then, John chapter 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Be only begotten from the Father. This is the unique sanctification or, or the unique result of the sanctification. There is this unique relationship and then the result is being set apart and sent into the world. 118 No man has seen God at any time the only begotten God or only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father he has explained him These are clear clear declarations of deity Chapter 5 John chapter 5 verse 16 516 When he healed a man on the sabbath day Jesus says the following John five sixteen And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. My father. Don't miss that expression. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. 18. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath but also was calling God his own Father. Calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Making himself equal with God by calling God his own Father. My Father tells them exactly what Jesus means. He's claiming deity. He's claiming to have a divine nature and being equal with God the Father. They know this. They know this. So we should also know this. When we say Jesus is the Son of God, we mean he has the nature of God the Father. When we say Jesus is the Son of Man, we mean he has the nature of man, yet without sin. Son of Man, he has the nature of man without sin. Son of God, he has the nature of God the Father. Also, by the way, son of man is helpful because it means not only he has the nature of man without sin, but he also possesses deity. Because in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, clearly Daniel saw the son of man as God, meaning with a divine nature. That's why we believe it was Jesus' favorite expression to describe himself. 37. John 10, 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. If Jesus does not perform the works of the Father, don't believe him. He's putting a condition there, a conditional statement out there. He's not saying, I'm not doing God's work. What he's saying is, if I didn't do God's work, then you would have grounds not to believe in me. But I am doing God's work. How many times do I have to display it? How many times do I have to say it? How many times do I have to defend it before you actually believe it? Believe on the basis of the works. Believe that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. What does it take to produce a believer? What does it take? It is not lack of words, and it's not lack of works. That's why Jesus is reiterating this in 37 and 38. You won't believe because of the works. You won't believe because of what I'm saying. What will it take to make you a believer? Nothing. There is nothing that resides externally, outside of man, in the world, that's going to convert a man. And there's nothing inside of a man, internally, that he possesses. Whether it's his will, his good will, his free will, there is nothing in him that will save him. Nothing. You won't believe that I and the Father are one. He is in me and I in him. And when you come to a realization of that truth, you you won't come to that realization for your own salvation. You refuse to do so. How much do they refuse to do so? How much is it impossible that nothing internal to them and nothing external to them, such as miracles, will convince them? We see the proof of it in 39. 39. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him. But he eluded their grasp. They could not tolerate his accurate explanation of scripture. They could not tolerate his accurate description of himself. They could not tolerate this condition he presented before them to believe the works They couldn't tolerate anything, he said. Anything he did. Nothing. That's how much unbelief was persistent in their heart. So much so that they want to grab him and put him to death. He eluded their grasp. This happens until it's time for Jesus to die. Until chapter 18 just as many times the prophets, the apostles, and Christ were pursued, just as many times other disciples of the Old Testament and disciples of the New Testament were pursued, their time of death doesn't come until God's appointed time. Meantime, what should we do? Just as Jesus continued to preach, Yes, it does say in verse 40 that he went away beyond the Jordan. But we'll see in a moment why he went there. He didn't go there merely to escape death, which is not necessarily a bad thing because Jesus did it. The prophets, the apostles, and the disciples throughout time have done so. Jesus teaches, for example, in John or Matthew, Matthew 10, Matthew 10, 23. But whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Whenever they persecute you, flee. He teaches. Whenever they persecute you, flee. Which they have done so at times. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. It describes how they fled. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. 8-1. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. There we have a great persecution... And the church is scattered, except the apostles. So avoiding and eluding persecution is not necessarily evil and wrong. But we do know that in time, God may have us seized, arrested, and put to death if he so wills. That might happen. And if it happens, it happens, just like it happened with Christ in John 18. Lastly, we have verses 40 to 42. 40 to 42. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. And many came to him, and they were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Where was it that he went beyond the Jordan? Beyond the Jordan, typically, not exclusively, but typically in Scripture, has reference to going on the eastern side of the Jordan River. On the eastern side of the Jordan River. John one twenty-eight, where John the Baptist was. John 1.28. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Jesus went there. He did not go only to escape and to live an easy life. What did he do there? He went there to be with the others because it says in 41, many came to him. When they came to him, what did they do? Did they just have a festival and have a party? Eat and drink a lot? No. He was teaching them. He was discipling them. He was always about doing his father's business, teaching and preaching the gospel of Christ. And when he did always about the Father's work, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John four thirty four. This is what he did there. And what stunned the people? Verses 41 and 42. What stunned them? While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. A couple of things we note. The people observed that John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, but John the Baptist in John chapter one, he didn't perform miracles. What was the nature of John the Baptist and his ministry? He lived in the wilderness, in the desert. He ate He ate locusts and wild honey, right? He wore leather and he would often fast, right? John would also not perform any miracles. No miracles, but he lived a very strict, austere life. He withheld the normal pleasures of life from himself. All because God told him, to do so. He was a prophet of God. He did that kind of thing. He didn't eat meat. He didn't drink wine. Right? He didn't do these kinds of things. And no miracle. That's the way John lived. Jesus lived, in a sense, the opposite of John. Jesus drank wine. He ate meat. And Jesus here, he performed miracles. Many miracles. Many of them. Notice this. Did did the intellectuals of the day, did the authorities of the day believe in John the Baptist? Did they believe what he was preaching? No. Did the intellectuals, the authorities of the day, believe in what Jesus was preaching? No. What does it show us? It doesn't matter. Whether you live a normal life like Jesus did in terms of eating and drinking, or if you live an austere life, a strict life like John did, whether you live a life that Jesus did sometimes in the wilderness, sometimes in the city, sometimes in the town, sometimes in the countryside, sometimes restricted with, uh, by being alone, sometimes with crowds and crowds of people all around him, Or whether you live like John, usually secluded and the people, both the common people and the intellectuals, the academics of the day would have to go out to him in the wilderness to see him, whatever it is, there were differences in their life and manners, right? But what did John preach and what did Jesus preach? They both preached the gospel. They both preached the gospel. Jesus performed miracles, John did not perform miracles, but both of them preached the gospel. One might ask, did John really preach the gospel? Yes, Luke says so in Luke 3, Luke 3:18. 3, so with many other exhortations also, he preached the gospel to the people. Luke 3:18. Speaking of John the Baptist, he preached the gospel to the people. What John had on his lips, what Jesus had on his lips, both were the gospel. What else do we notice here in verse 41? Yet everything John said about this man was true. John was an honest man. John told the truth at all times. John told the truth about Jesus Christ. Everything he said about Jesus was true and came about. The people recognized it. And it says in 42, they believed. Many believed in him there. What do we learn from this? The messengers of Christ. In this case, John the Baptist, the last and the greatest of all the prophets. The messengers of Christ must preach the truth about Christ. The people need to hear harmony. They need to hear agreement, coherency between the messengers of Christ and what's true, actually true of Christ. There should be truth being spread in both directions. People should see Jesus and his messengers and see truth between the two. Nothing false, nothing untrue between the two. Only the truth. And when they see the truth like that, when they see that consistent truth, what does it produce? Many believed in him there. Many believed in him there. We won't have belief, true belief, unless the messengers, the pastors, the preachers, the ministers are preaching the truth. They must preach the truth about Christ for people to understand the truth of Christ. That's the only way. That's why the word of truth should be central. The word of Christ should be central. Not the word of men, but only the word of Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.